Well, there are quite a lot of questions and a wide range of them. Probably won't have time to go through them all. I've grouped uh, some of the questions together. Um, sometimes the grouping will be obvious and sometimes not. The first few have to do with metta and compassion, loving-kindness and compassion. You have explained why meditation over the long run develops compassion, but why does meditation for just a 10-day retreat lead to any apparent, although unfortunately in my experience temporary, increase in compassion? There's a fly in the hall who it seems has a particular fondness for me. <laughs> he stomps across my forehead and then tries to investigate my ears or nostrils. I do not feel meta towards the fly. <laughs> in fact, I want to kill it. <laughs> and have tried to swat it on a few occasions. How to develop a gentle, tolerant mind towards something so painstakingly irritating. Can you suggest some skillful ways to cultivate metta towards people who have committed or are committing terrible atro atrocities? For example, an Adolf Hitler. That's the last one. When I practice metta, is it necessary to use for every person I imagine the same words, especially when I do it as a concentration practice? Um. In terms of compassion and the development of compassion, how it happens, that it develops, <clears throat> whether it's over a, a long time, years of practice, or even within a 10-day retreat, the proximate cause for the arising of compassion is nearness to suffering. It's when we really open to and come close to and feel the suffering, whether in ourselves or in other people, that's what gives rise to the feeling of compassion within us. Because compassion is that feeling which wants to alleviate the pain and suffering in ourselves or in others. What makes a retreat so powerful in so many ways <clears throat> and especially a long one like this, is that we find ourselves increasingly face-to-face -face with a very wide range of suffering that we feel in ourselves, in our own bodies, in our minds, in memories of experiences. Because we've stopped distracting ourselves so much, it's we begin to come close. We begin to actually feel the suffering that's there. And that's why over a period of time in practice there's a tremendous tenderness of heart. It's not always apparent. You know, and a lot of times from sitting to sitting or day to day, you know, in dealing with the hindrances and the problems, one often forgets or loses sight of the tremendous softening that's taking place, but it is, and it is in everybody. Um, in our world outside, in the busyness of our world outside, many of us have created a lot of distractions and defenses against letting the suffering in. And so times of practice really enable us to get in touch with that and to allow this feeling of compassion to grow. A subtlety of it, which we'll talk more about in later talks just on compassion, but one of the subtleties 
has to do with the difference between opening to suffering and feeling of aversion to suffering. Because many people in their lives may feel that they're actually open to suffering in themselves or others, but it's not a real openness. But it's actually an awareness of suffering, but with aversion. That is not compassion. And so you see, just in the very simple times of being with some physical pain, the difference of opening to it softly, opening to it with acceptance, and being aware of it with resistance. Those are two very different states. The compassion arises out of the first, not out of, not out of a resistance or a dislike of suffering, but rather an opening and a feeling of it. In terms of the fly, that's a great teacher, that fly. One of the things that I, that I love so much about the practice is that we see the whole world in our minds. You know, we see all the really noble qualities that are to be found in the world, and we see all the qualities which make for suffering and war and conflict, and it's all inside. Something comes and it's unpleasant. Kill it. And what is, what is funny about it, in a way, is that this is not an uncommon reaction. <laughs> We've all had that, you know, as the fly buzzes around. And so just to see that those seeds, these are the same seeds, you know, that are out in the world, played out in so many disastrous ways. You know, something that we don't like, something that's unpleasant, something that's threatening. Do away with it. And so the practice, in this, in this very small example, it's really a chance to watch that in our minds. Because if we don't see it, if we're under the delusion that we don't have those feelings, then there's no chance at all of actually getting free of them. You know, then they just get played out in very unconscious ways in our lives. To the extent that the fly buzzes around, we see that feeling, that thought arise in the mind. If there's enough mindfulness to see the thought, to see the desire, you know, to swat it, and then to have enough mindfulness to be able not to do it. Right there is a real moment of freedom. It's a real moment of purification. That's the force of freedom in our own minds that's going to translate to greater peace in the world. When we can let go of the identification with these tendencies of ill will, of aversion, of hatred in our own minds. It's not particularly that they're going to quickly stop coming. Now, it's not that these thoughts are not going to come, but how skillful can we be in seeing them and letting them go? And so there's a tremendous training. And be grateful for the fly, you know, because it really reveals. It just, it, it's like a Zen master. You know, it's, just, it's revealing the nature of the mind to us. How can we develop metta towards people who are doing very harmful things, really horrible things? I had one teacher from India who's actually a uh, Hindu sadhu. Years ago, he came and he was visiting America a really beautiful guy. 
And in one of his discussions and talks, he said something that really has stuck in my mind all these years. He said that when he looks at the world, he doesn't see conflict and he doesn't see war and he doesn't see hatred and what he sees is ignorance. And really that's what's happening. All of the unskillful actions that are done, all of the harmful things, all of the things that cause suffering, where are they rooted? They're rooted out of this tremendous depth of ignorance in the mind, of just not knowing, of not understanding, not understanding the suffering that's being caused, not understanding the karmic fruits of what's being created for oneself in doing those kinds of actions. It's like somebody walking towards fire and doing those very actions which are going to draw them right into the fire. If we can see that, if we can see past the action to the root causes of the action, which is ignorance, the response to ignorance is much more genuinely one of compassion, wanting to help in whatever way we can that being come out of ignorance. doesn't make sense, and, and I think you can get the feeling, to desire retribution for ignorance. It's not helping the situation to be angry, to hate the ignorance. That's not helping the ignorance. What helps the ignorance is bringing wisdom and compassion. And so it really depends how we frame it. This in no way, not in any way whatsoever, is a condoning of harmful actions. And so it should not be misinterpreted in that way. It's seeing very clearly what actions are harmful, what actions are suffering, but then going a step further and seeing what is the root cause of that and applying our energy to uprooting that cause. That's what we're doing in ourselves as well. In terms of the actual metta practice, you know, as we repeat certain phrases, for the most part, especially as it's done as a concentration practice, it's helpful to more or less keep the same phrases because the mind can, the mind will explore deeper and deeper meanings of the phrases. If you're repeating, may you be free of suffering, may you be free of pain, may you be happy, we can say those words on a very superficial level or we can be saying them as if from the inside of them, really understanding the, the meaning and the taste and the flavor of each of those words. If we change the words frequently, we don't give ourselves the chance to settle into the richness of what is being said. Because each of these are tremendously powerful sentiments. You know, when we are expressing, may you be free of suffering, if we're really in that, there's tremendous profundity in that wish. But it takes time to settle into it because it's easy to say it on a more superficial level. But I also wouldn't make it an ironclad rule of practice that the phrases should never change. Because sometimes as you're going from person to person, you may find that some phrases just fit very well and others don't fit that person. 
And so in that situation, I think some flexibility is fine. So it's to find the balance between those two. Why are the kalesas, which are the, the defilements of mind, so strongly conditioned as opposed to the good factors? Where does the identification factor, why does the identification factor arise at all? How and why does the process of identification take place? Don't underestimate how powerfully conditioned the wholesome factors are, because we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't even be born as human beings if there were not tremendously powerful forces of wholesome, of purity in the mind. This precious human birth is the result of wholesome states of mind. Even more so, people drawn to practice, drawn to a path of awakening. One of the things that happens in practice as we begin looking at our own minds often feel overwhelmed at the magnitude and spread of the galaxies, of the defilements, and we look and we see restlessness and sleepiness and anger and desire and all of these things, and it feels like the mind is nothing but, you know, these hindrances. But the example which is used to describe this phenomena, and I think it's quite accurate, if you have a dirty cloth, you know, and it's a cloth that's just full of grime and dirt, another black spot on it is not going to really show up very much. As the cloth gets cleaner, all the stains really stand out. They become very obvious. What's happening in the context of practice is that there's an increasing clarity and purity of mind, which is precisely why the hindrances stand out so clearly and they're so noticeable. So keep a balanced perspective on it all. You know, it is important to see these defilements or calaces as they arise, but understand that the clarity of seeing them is coming precisely from an increasing purity of consciousness. Why is the factor of identification, why do we identify so much you know, with thoughts and feelings in the body and sensations? It's a particular mental factor you know, in, the Buddhist, in the Buddhist scheme of the mind, which is called wrong view because it's the view or understanding of things that is incorrect. We're not seeing things correctly. The reason for it, the reason that it's so strong, is because there's an underdeveloped level of something called wise consideration or wise attention. We have a wrong view of things because of the habit of not paying careful attention to how things are actually happening. And we see it. You know, we sit down and we try to watch and we see how difficult it is to pay sustained attention. And we're not trying to do something very complicated. You know, it's not that we're trying to visualize a hundred thousand deities in different colors and postures and kind of hold it in our minds and... No, just in, out. <laughs> you know, really simple, lift, move, place. It's very simple and very difficult. It's... And so we see, we see very, very clearly for ourselves that this 
factor of wise attention, wise consideration, really needs some work. As it develops, as we just pay attention in a more and more sustained way, we begin to learn a few things. Not intellectually, not conceptually, we learn it from our own direct experience. One of the things we learn is that every single object is arising and passing away. Not only is the object arising and passing, but the knowing of the object is arising and passing. It's through the seeing of this very carefully that we begin to identify less and less. To put it conversely, it's through not seeing the momentariness of phenomena, through not seeing the truth of this changing nature, that's when wrong view jumps in. says, yes, this is me, this is who I am. And you can see it, you can see it very clearly in your practice. Those times when the mind is lost in a thought, caught up in a thought, identified with a thought, you know, creating a whole drama inside the mind through identification. The difference between that and those times when the mindfulness is quite keen and the mind clear, and we simply see the thought come and go. We see it as a passing phenomena. In that moment, there's no identification and no problem. Regardless of the content of the thought, the content could be the worst thought in the world. And they often are. (laughs) And it doesn't matter at all. It has no effect on the mind at all if we're seeing the momentariness. We see it just come and go. Because there's wise attention, we see the impermanence. Because we see the impermanence, there's no identification. Because there's no identification, there's no problem. And so the whole practice, it's, so, it's just so beautiful how it all fits together out of mindfulness, out of sustained attention. The whole Dharma unfolds for us. Feels like I can most get a sense of no self when I open up my field of awareness and include everything all sensations, sights, sounds, etc. Almost as if when all my energy is extended outward, there is no energy left to create or fixate on a self. Is this a technique that is used, and how or should it be used? It's really a question about the difference between a directed awareness primarily on the breath and noting other things simply when they become very predominant or strong, or a settling back and opening up the field where there's not a primary focus on the breath. It's just a wide open awareness, noting moment after moment, whatever is arising. That way of practice at times, it's fine to do. And sometimes if you're feeling very, kind of getting tight and constricted or struggling, it might be good to settle back really open up, leave the breath for a while, and just, just know whatever is arising in the moment. This hearing, this seeing, there's a sensation, there's a thought. Just track moment after moment. To spend some time doing that could help the mind come to a balance and a spaciousness. The reason that it's not suggested as a primary practice is that it can be easy for the mind then to stay on a certain level. And we're noting things fairly well, but there's not necessarily a build-up of energy, a build-up of momentum, of strength. And so the mindfulness can becomes and can stay uh, somewhat diffuse. This effort to come back to the breath, to redirect the mind to a primary object, 
And it could be the breath that some of you are doing sitting touching, serving the same purpose. It's the bringing of the mind back. That takes a certain quality of effort. And it's that effort which is building energy. It's like, ex it's like when we do a repetitive exercise, the exercise develops strength in us. You know, we keep doing it and the body gets stronger. You could think of the coming back to the primary object as, as this mental exercise. We come back, we come back, we come back, and it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And the whole energy level of the system starts to raise. Then when we open up to a more choiceless awareness, we're perceiving things. I don't exactly know how to say it, on a, on a higher energy level. You know, we're just seeing things in a much finer, um, more powerful way. And so there's a balance between the two. Especially at the beginning of practice, in the beginning can be the first 20 years. <laughs> It's really helpful to give a lot of attention to this coming back to the primary object. Not exclusively, because we are noting other things, but giving emphasis to it. And it's like this conserving and building of momentum. But from time to time, you could experiment with just, you know, you've built a certain energy and momentum. You could open and just do a little choiceless awareness. And then when you feel the mind getting too diffuse, again, come back. What is the limit you can focus on intense pain? If need be, can you spend whole hour watching the pain in its various forms? Why does the same level of pain spread over time get harder and harder to endure? Those two questions really point to the issue with pain. Occasionally, it would be fine to stay with it for a really extended period of time. You know, if it's very predominant, very strong, very compelling, just as an experiment to see what happens, you could stay with it for a sitting. Generally speaking, it's better to go back and forth between the breath and the pain, several minutes at a time, or five minutes, ten minutes even, for two reasons. One is, the mind has a tendency in being with a painful object for long periods of time, the mind has a tendency to wither, to pull back, to get tired. The pain can exhaust the mind. And then the mindfulness and the energy tend to go down. And so by going back and forth, it's like we're with the pain and there's a lot of alertness, a lot of energy. And we come back to the breath and it's like resting and rejuvenating. And again back to the pain. Again back to the breath. So that's one reason for the coming back. Another reason is... This is a kind of subtlety of practice which you might observe. When pain is very strong, or sensations are very strong, it's as if the mind is drawn to it, but it can be with it without much mental exercise. It's almost like the mind just stays with it in a kind of effortless way, because it's so strong. The coming back to the breath, when the pain is strong, requires a strong intentionality. I'm going to leave the pain and come back. That coming back to the breath, again, builds energy. Come back again, and it builds more energy. So when we return to the pain, we observe it on a different level. A lot of the practice has to do with this build-up of energy momentum. An image which is in my mind, 
my background in science is so minimal, so it may be quite inaccurate, but it's the image I have anyway, of a particle accelerator, you know, where they accelerate some kind of particles, <laughs> faster and faster and faster and faster, and then, I don't know if this is really what happens, but <laughs> then they, you know, shoot it at some target and the atom splits or whatever, splits, split. <laughs> anyway, I think you have the idea. In some way, that's what happens in the practice. It's like we're building energy and building energy and building energy until it gets so powerful that we actually are able to to open up to a whole different level of reality. But that takes that build-up of momentum, which is why there's so much emphasis on continuity, so much emphasis on the coming back to the primary object, not in a forced way, because that's counterproductive, in a tender way. It's like we're just shepherding the mind back shepherding it back, as conserving the energy. And if we do that with a fair degree of continuity, it just starts building and building and building and building until we have this amazing power within us to really enter deeply into whole other levels of understanding. So that's, that's the process that's going on in part. Noting all the lifting, moving, putting all the time seems to make me giddy. Is it necessary all the time? Learning how to use the noting skillfully really is a great art. And it takes a lot of practice and a lot of experimenting. The first thing I would suggest is to check whether the noting is soft enough. And by soft enough, it can be pretty soft. It can be almost silent in the mind, especially when the mind is clear. Just enough so it's connecting. I did something in this last retreat in Australia, which I don't really know whether it's uh, how heretical it was, but it worked really well for me. Uh, so I'll suggest it. And I abbreviated all the notes to the first letter. And so instead of lifting, moving, placing, I just started doing L, M, P, L, M, P. And somehow it, it just made, it kind of just slid right on top of the movement, very effortlessly. And yet it served the purpose of the note. It really was a way of keeping the mind fixed and steady on the entire duration of the step or the duration of the breath. I was doing R, F, R, F. And so again, there's, there's room for experimentation with this. If, at times, you find yourself that the noting is absolutely driving you crazy, leave it off for a bit, like a minute or two, <laughs> and then start again. <laughs> play, play with what note you're actually using. Play with the volume. You, know, you can play with abbreviating it. And really most important in understanding it as a tool, really see for yourself, investigate the difference over a period of time when you're using it and when you're not. Difference in terms of sustained attention, difference in terms of clarity, difference um, in terms of aim. Just so you see for yourself, you really see how the noting is functioning. Um, and again, take, be flexible with it. It's not, it's not something that's uh, a tight form. Uh, 
I find when I am doing walking meditation that I like to make a resolve when I reach a wall or in the street a telephone pole or a designated tree to remain mindful of steps. How to periodically remember in sitting where there are no trees <laughs> so that I won't get lost as long in thoughts. The simplest way of being reminded and of building the practice very carefully is something we've mentioned quite a lot, and it's really just practicing and remembering to do it, is make each breath the tree. Each breath re-aim. Mostly I find that the wandering mind happens the most when we undertake too big a project for ourselves. Okay, I'm going to be mindful for the next half hour. It's much too much. You know, we can't do it. But if we get into the habit of reminding ourselves, okay, I'm going to be mindful for this in-breath, or this rising movement. We set ourselves a task that can be done, and then we apply the effort, so then there's a great feeling of success. Oh, one riser. <laughs> I did it. Yeah, so we feel good about ourselves. Let's try with the falling. You know, just... It's so simple. And so it's just creating a good practice habit. It's, it's, it's developing the habit of doing that, of renewing the aim with each breath, or each part of the breath. Um, as I mentioned you know, earlier in the retreat, these two factors of aiming and sustaining, that first connection with the beginning of it and the effort to hold the attention for the duration, very small duration, but actually to hold it for the duration, these two factors of aiming and sustaining are the keystones of samadhi, of concentration. So if you work on developing these two, the samadhi, samadhi develops. In that regard of samadhi, I must read you one question, if I can find it. This is about samadhi. The other night when talking about concentration, Sharon made reference to people who could fly, walk through walls, and create multiple bodies. I think she then said Deepama could do all those things. I know Sharon doesn't lie, but could Deepama really do all that? <laughs> Golly. <laughs> So if you aim and sustain really well, <laughs> you'll just be able to appear in your room. If I have this correctly, four of the five hindrances are uprooted with the four stages of enlightenment. Only sloth and torpor isn't. Do you know why this would be? Is sloth too heavenly conditioned by the body? That's not actually accurate, because the sloth and torpor 
is uprooted at the last stage. It's at the fourth stage of enlightenment. Which is interesting that it should take so long. You know, to, that this particular factor of mind, sloth, is very deeply conditioned in us. And so even after desire is uprooted and aversion is uprooted, sloth and torpor is still there. Um, this is just for you to keep in mind for the end of the retreat. Uh, for those of you who are interested, there's a very interesting book. It's a massive book. It's called The Path of Purification, which is a sort of compendium of the Buddhist teachings. In the back section, it's divided into Sila Samadhi Panya, a section on morality, on concentration practices, and on wisdom, enlightenment. In the wisdom section, there's a very interesting part where it explains what qualities of mind, what tendencies, what habits are uprooted at the different stages. You know, and in the Buddhist, the Buddhist psychology, there's a tremendous fondness for lists. And so it's not just a question of the ten defilements. There's the ten defilements and the four floods and the stains and the corruptions and the this and the that. <laughs> yeah, and so they're, they're broken down in a lot of different ways. Um, and it's just interesting to see what combinations of these things actually are uprooted from the mind at the first stage of enlightenment and what at the second one, the third. So for those of you who have that kind of mind or that kind of interest, it's all very clearly laid out. This was a whole bunch of questions around sexuality and the Dhamma. Could you talk about the right relationship between sexuality and spirituality according to the teachings? Is masturbation considered sexual activity? I would like to hear you talk about sexual relationship and dharma, if you dare. <laughs> That's a long one, but I think I'll, I'll just leave the first line there. Um, This is a huge topic. And so I'll just touch on a few, a few general areas. There are two main two main ways that I understand it. One is that what is natural at a certain level of consciousness is not necessarily natural to another level of consciousness. And so in looking at this question, I think it's really helpful to understand, not to take a conventional viewpoint, because the conventional viewpoint would say, well, sexuality is just a natural biological function. And on a very broad level of our experience, that's exactly what it is. You know, and so, it's to understand that, but to also understand that it's a function of a certain level of consciousness, and that there are stages of awakening in which sexual desire does not arise. And it's not that it's, that state is abnormal, it's normal to that level. And so it's a very big, it's a big picture. So that's one way, just one, one way of holding it. Another way is to understand that even in that level, where sexuality is a major force in people's lives, 
as I think it is for most of us, depending on our particular life choices, different expressions of that energy are either appropriate or inappropriate. And so, for example, as lay people, we're not monks or nuns, and we're living in the world, there's, there's one whole set of guidelines for sexuality and sexual misconduct. Basically, very simple, which is not to commit adultery. Not to get involved with people who are committed to another relationship. And in a very obvious way, we can see that that creates a lot of harm, a lot of distrust, often a lot of dishonesty. There are a lot of implications from that. And so in the ordinary lay life, uh, sexuality is very much a part of that experience and um, from the Buddha, from the teachings, from the perspective of the Buddhist teachings, that's, that's quite appropriate. When we come to a special environment like a retreat, or people who choose to take on additional precepts, like monks or nuns, then there's a choice being made, either for a period of time or for a lifetime, to work with sexual energy in a different way. And speaking now mostly in the context of this retreat, I think there's tremendous, a tremendous amount to be learned about the nature of desire and our relationship to it by undertaking the precept for this period of time to refrain from sexual activity, which in this case does include masturbation or any kind of sexual action. We're really giving that up for this time. What's the value, one might ask? What purpose does it serve? Is it just a kind of negativity about the body or negativity about sexual energy? There's something much more profound going on. And it it has to do very critically with the whole question of liberation, of enlightenment. And that is by the taking of this precept of abstinence for a period of time. What we learn, if we look carefully, as desires arise in us, we see that, we see very clearly that desires do not have to be fulfilled in order to be resolved. And in our worldly sense, and especially, especially I think in our culture, there's such a conditioning towards immediate or as close to immediate as possible gratification. You know, desire comes, how can I fill it? And there's this feeling that if I don't fill it, it's just going to be with me until I do that puts an enormous pressure on our lives. And it's not true. One of the things that I have seen a lot in my practice, and and I'm sure you are in the middle of seeing it, when there is an ability to sit back and really observe a desire, a strong sexual desire, or desire for anything, desire for food, desire for whatever. And we have this ability just to be with desire, desire, knowing we're not going to act on it. What happens? We watch it, we watch it, we watch it, we watch it. 
and at a certain point it's gone. It's no longer there. And it's not that it's lurking. It's really gone. And it may be back, you know, when conditions reform. But again, we watch it, we watch it, we watch it, and then it's gone. And we see very directly, very immediately, that there's nothing we had to do about it. We didn't have to act on it, and we didn't have to fulfill it. It's there, and then it's not there. What this does for us in our lives opens up a huge space, spaciousness, of freedom relative to desire. Desires arise in our life outside. We no longer have that inner sense of compulsion, of franticness, about having to fulfill this desire for satisfaction. There's a space where we can really choose. Okay, there's the desire. Is it appropriate? Is it skillful? Is this the time? We can either do it or not do it, and the mind stays really in balance and in peace. We're no longer so driven by the force of desire. Coming to understand this in a deep way, which happens, can happen through the insight of watching this come up in retreat where we know we're not going to act on it, has tremendous, tremendous implications for how we live. Not only for how we live, the, the energy which keeps us bound to this wheel of samsara, this wheel of birth and death and rebirth, about which we'll talk much more as the retreat goes on, The very driving energy of samsara is craving, is desire. It's precisely because we haven't learned, we haven't seen, that we can really let go. We can just let them come and go. We don't have to act on them. That's what keeps us in a very fundamental way bound. And so learning about this in the context of a retreat, in the context of abstinence, it gives us the opportunity to see, to learn. So there's a, a tremendous value, tremendous value. Now, and as I mentioned, some of us do it for a 10-day retreat or a three-month retreat. Some people ordain for several years. Some people ordain for life. And so different actions are appropriate depending on the commitments that we've undertaken. This is just the kind of framework for understanding this issue in the context of the practice. There's much more to be said, and I think it would be interesting toward the end of the retreat, really to look at this question in terms of how we live with this energy in our lives. I thought it was really important to talk about. Because for so many people it's such a charged issue, you know, that there's a lot, there's a lot of conditioning and a lot of stuff around sexuality. I think it's really important, as we observe it arise, and it, in three months it's bound to come up, you know, at least once. <laughs> Be really watchful about how the mind is relating to it. Can it see it in a very clear and balanced way, as with any of the other hindrances of, of aversion or sloth or restlessness, so that there's a seeing and a seeing of it clearly without aversion, without judgment, without a whole trip about it. 
We really just want to understand the nature of that force in the mind and understand our relationship to it. That's, that's where the freedom is. Just one more, <laughs> one more thing on this. I don't know whether I mentioned this to the whole group or in one of the smaller groups. A very interesting thing happens in practice as it goes on. Most of us have our greatest delight, our greatest happiness in pleasant sensation, in pleasant feelings, you know, of of whatever kind, pleasant bodily sensations are, are a major component of our happiness. As the practice deepens, we begin to open to levels of experience how to say, with, which are actually more neutral feeling than pleasant feeling and more fulfilling. And so it's just to be aware of the addiction we have to pleasantness as being a... There's a limitation in that. Because there there are realms and domains of experience which go way beyond pleasantness and actually are incomparably more fulfilling and, and so again, it's, it's really to keep a mind open to the, to the vastness of this whole thing. And a willingness to, a willingness just to explore, you know, to, to come out of what's familiar and just be exploring and, you know, opening to what's unfamiliar. There may be one last question here. Please talk about a sense of path. I have known many people who have connected strongly to the Dhamma through practice or study or both, but who have either let that connection fall away or have not aspired to deep liberation. The number of people who pass through Dhamma scenes are many. Though the, person of, the purpose of the Dhamma is clear, the number of people who actually aspire to realize the end of suffering seems to be quite few. What are the causes for this aspiration to arise? What causes it to fall away? How can a teacher skillfully help people to ignite this flame and to nurture it along? This question of motivation in practice and aspiration in practice is actually quite complex because I think we all come Many of us come from many different directions, and people may want different things. One of the things that I appreciate so much about the Buddha's teachings was his he was a great cartographer. He was like he was he drew this cosmic map and he just laid out, he laid out the universe. And it was through, it was through his direct vision, his direct seeing, not his, not his theory or philosophy. And he saw the realms over here which was suffering, a lot of suffering. And realms here where there was a mixture of suffering and happiness, and realms of happiness. And then liberation from it all. And he laid it all out and he said, this path leads here, this path leads here, this path leads here, this path leads to liberation. It's up to you. What is it that we want? What's interesting to me is how often people can start practice from one motivation and the practice itself changes the motivation. 
as we go along, we begin to get glimpses of possibilities that we had not even known uh, existed before. And so our vision of what's possible really grows. One of the things that keeps pushing us along to the highest now, after, for whatever reason, we come to the practice and we, we, get, we get established in it, a lot of the practice is opening to deeper and deeper understandings of suffering. You know, it's said that the reason enlightenment happens in stages is because our mind is not capable all at once of opening to the amount of suffering it's necessary to see in order to be free. Sometimes people hear that and it may sound gloomy. <laughs> oh, this is a path of suffering. Well, there's a lot of this, <laughs> as you probably have already discovered. But really, it's not the sense of us drowning in suffering. It's our sense of understanding it. And out of that understanding of suffering, that's where the compassion comes. <coughs> these two, these, the opening to suffering and the growth of compassion, those two are intimately linked. The more we open to this, the more we see it, I think it keeps pushing us towards the possibility of real freedom. I think one of the greatest things a teacher can do in relationship to a student is not to let them rest at some place short of liberation. And there are lots of nice resting places along the way. No, there really are. There's, you know, we begin to feel more peaceful, we feel more in harmony, we feel better adjusted, we relate better, our lives get better. And all of that can happen and does happen along the path. But I think a good teacher knows that all of that is still a very conditioned kind of happiness. And so keeps, keeps pushing, keeps pushing in hopefully skillful ways. It's one of the things that I have appreciated so much about working with Upandita. No matter what glorious experience I went in with, he was unimpressed. <laughs> and he had, he had great range of unimpressed expressions. <laughs> and I, it's wonderful. It's just wonderful because it just, okay, you know, got to give that one up and just keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, so, there's a lot. I mean, as, as you can see from this range of questions, we just got to about half of them. One last, one last little thing. A couple of the questions which I didn't read were about to talk about how IMS was created and its vision and you know, how it's unfolded. What that, those questions reminded me of were of my practice days early on in India where I was staying at the Burmese Vihar in Bodh Gaya, which was 
it's like a little Burmese monastery. Or, uh, there weren't actually very many monks. It was mostly just some travelers staying there who were getting interested in meditation. I spent many years there. Distractions and a lot of problems there. And still I was so grateful that in this world, you know, where there are so many difficult, difficult situations and forces, to have a place that was supportive of practice felt to me like such Such a great blessing. It was, just, it was a sanctuary of the Dhamma. And that's really what this place is about. You know, and, and I hope you have sort of that feeling about the opportunity you have to practice, because it's so precious in this world. You know, and, and in our own lives, we don't know when we get these opportunities again. So it's just by way of encouraging you to delight in it. You know, the, the space is really wonderful for practice, and the opportunity for you to be doing this is such a gift. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.